first podcast for the Altruism, Morality, and Social Solidarity section of the American Sociological Association. I'm the current chair of the section, David Malamed, and with me today is Penny Edgel, the incoming chair. Hi. Hi. Um, so just today's podcast, it's the inaugural one, so I'm just going to start with a couple of kind of announcements to get the ball rolling, and then we're going to get into a discussion of an article that was submitted by Dr. Edgel. So I'd like to begin by thanking the Publications Committee for the Altruism, Morality, and Social Solidarity section. Uh, right now, that consists of Valentina Cantori, Kirby Goff, Jihee Kim, Jundai Liu, and it's chaired by Scott Hamilton. And the new Amplified Web presence for the section, as well as this podcast, is their work. And I just want to acknowledge, acknowledge them for, for their contributions here. Um, so we're, we are starting this to, to kind of have a broader reach. Um, and I think that our section has a lot to offer, particularly right now with, with the themes that we deal with um, and the divisiveness that we see in our society, um, right, particularly during the pandemic. So, uh, Dr. Edgel, before we get into the specifics of your paper, I was just wondering if you had any thoughts or suggestions on how we could make our work more applicable um, in, in kind of the times of crises that we find ourselves in now. Oh, I think that's a great that's a great question, David. Um, first of all, thank you for having me on the podcast. It's very fun to be part of the initial, um, the, the, the first one for the website and for the section. Um, you know, I, I think that there's a couple of different ways to think about that. One is this question of translation, right? How can we translate our work for a broader audience? Um, you know, I know that at our university, we actually run workshops for faculty every January. There's a big um, um, event, and we hold it in the student center building, which has like huge, huge spaces, but also lots of breakout rooms, and there are trainings, and you can, you bring something that you're working on, and you listen to the, the general presentations, but you also get to pitch it to somebody who's trained in public communication, and they tell you how to think about and work on your pitch. So I, I think for folks who want to do their own translation, there are resources available now, and I would urge people to take advantage of those. Um, I have not, and I will admit, I have not done very much of that. I did um, write up a piece with uh, Wendy Cadge um, at Brandeis University for the conversation, um, and I did that. But I mean, she came to me and said, "Hey, I have this idea, and it's relevant to your work too. And do you want to work on it together?" So um, I will be honest; I have needed a little kick in the pants to do that, um, and not everyone wants to do that. I, I do think there are other things, though. Too, there are other folks who will translate for you. Um, I study I study lots of different things. I'm, I'm, I think a little bit more of a generalist than some of our, our colleagues, but so a lot of my work is on American religion. One of the things I've gotten to do, um, and I'm on pretty fairly active on Twitter, is but I know a couple of religion reporters. Um, so one of the things I've been able to do is like talk with them about their my work, and um, often they will then come to me for commentary so I think that's another thing that you can do is you can kind of get to know reporters. You can take advantage of your university's press release program. They will do press releases for your work. Um, so, but I think that it's it's something that I would like to see more of a conversation on in the section, maybe even like things that sessions or um, opportunities um, at the meetings. Maybe we could do one of our roundtable sessions. Um, we could have as a slot, just a roundtable discussion of this and anyone who is interested could come. I think that that's, one of the things that we can think more creatively is about using the ASA meeting itself and the time that we have there, particularly as we, we hopefully transition back to in-person meetings. Um, to, but we don't, it doesn't have to be in person. We could start that conversation with like some Zoom meetings beforehand for anyone who's interested to think about how we can do that more effectively. Yep. 
Thank you. Those are some some good suggestions. Good suggestions. I think it's great that uh, your university hosts a workshop on on how to do translational work. Um, you know, we have a press office here at OSU, um, and I hadn't thought to reach out to them in ways mm -hmm. of helping with the translation. But I think those are good suggestions. Yeah, we, we did a fair amount of that. I was involved in a big research project here called the American Mosaic Project and um, with three other PIs. And, you know, it was it um, generated findings that were kind of a little bit of, of broader interest. So uh, the most discriminated, well, not the most discriminated against group, but the group that the Americans felt the most negative sentiment toward, this is a 2003 article, was atheists. And that was really a big surprise to all of us. And so we had to figure out what that meant. And that ended up being newsworthy. I mean, it was surprising to other people too. Um, we didn't, I think, wouldn't necessarily have known that it was newsworthy, except for our, our um, we have the university press office, but then our college has a um, somebody who um, interfaces between faculty in our college and the university press office. So they had sent out an email saying, hey, you know, what are you working on? And we sent them back a couple paragraphs and they're like, oh, my goodness, let's get this in a press release. And so so, again, it helps to have other people who kind of kick you in the pants a little bit or, or, or are willing to just kind of make those connections or give you the nudge, because otherwise we're all pretty busy. I mean, my job is pretty demanding, so I'm not going to do it without a little bit of help. Yeah, that's that's a great suggestion. Um, I find myself working in more and more team environments, more team like bigger team projects. Mm -hmm. And I can't help but think it would be great to have a kind of specialist in public mm -hmm. relations on, on those large team contributions because, you know, most people are focused on their part and not the whole mm -hmm. of the project to see how it really translates. Um, and so, you know, maybe more specific to that setting, there might be some other ways of... I think you know, that would be a really great idea. And, I, I you know, I think that academic work is changing and a lot of folks um, who get PhDs and are very research-oriented you know, aren't going the academic route with their career. And I've often wondered if there isn't this space that for somebody, for people who are um, very research savvy themselves um, and familiar with academic culture uh, to maybe take on that role, like that that would be something that folks could do um, for multiple research projects, whether they're, you know, associated with your university or just as a kind of freelance service. I think there's real opportunity there. So as well. Um, well, I'd like to pivot a little bit to the specific article that you, you submitted. Sure. Um, so it was an article published in Poetics. The version I have is like a, a preprint, so I don't know exactly when it was published, but it's, I believe, in taking care of people, pushing back against rationalized institutions with a logic of care. It is still on, it's still one of their um, in-press corrected proof version on their website. So it's not yet in a, a physical copy of the journal. Great. So it's, it's cutting edge new stuff. Yes. So what, what, how would you describe the logic of care? Oh, oh, well, that's, I, we defined it. We had to define it because the reviewers made us, we tried very hard to get away with not defining it, but the reviewers <laughs> actually give a definition. Um, but we, um, Yes, so we define it as a style of moral reasoning. And, and the, this paper, I think, was more concerned about um, moral reasoning in, within interactions in a public setting. So it wasn't so much about people's own deep subjectivities. And I, I need to make that clear. So um, it wasn't, so the idea of care might evoke an emotional response, and, but we don't have a lot of, you know, this is not really about people's emotions. It's about the, the logics they use, the moral claims that they make in interaction. So it's about moral reasoning or moral claims making 
but in prioritizing, it prioritizes individual well-being. So that could either be enhancing people's well-being or reducing harm. But it's also rooted in a sense of empathy and it accounts for context and individual circumstances. And we kind of put that definition together from different treatments that, so there's some of the, um, the work by Jonathan Haidt and his colleagues um, is reflected in that understanding, but also some of the earlier feminist scholarship, um, Patricia Hill Collins and Carol Gilligan, Joan Tronto in political science, who's here at Minnesota, um, that also takes into account the idea of, particularly in public life, that um, a logic of justice, which is universal rules applied to everyone in the same way, um, often you know that do real violence to people and that there's something to be um there's a moral argument to be made for taking individual context and circumstance into account and also for reducing harm as its own moral principle and you were making the argument if i'm not mistaken that the logic of care is um maybe a different logic than the logic of justice and and it seems that the logic of justice is more dominant or at least that's a, a common narrative if that was that's what a you great were kind question. of documenting yeah, I think the common, well, I think the common understanding it, it, among sociologists for sure, but I also think maybe in society more broadly is yes, that what's that um, a logic of justice is because it's embedded in our legal system, right? It's embedded in our laws and institutions and regulations. I mean, uh, you know, if I were to go out um, and drive on an expired driver's license, the police person is not going to ask me about my individual circumstances. You know, maybe I couldn't get to get it renewed because I've been sick or I was taking care of somebody who was ill. I mean, no one cares, right? It's like, it's, it, there's a rule and it applies to everyone. And so we think about these kind, and also other kind of more rationalistic logics. We think about those as being dominant because they're embedded in our institutions and our institutions are organized around them. And what we found in our talking with people about, so we, we, gay people in focus groups vignette and they dramatize some decision-making situations. So, and it was a decision-making situation designed to get people to kind of engage in complex moral reasoning, right? Where there might be some kind of, where it was fairly obvious that there might be conflicting or competing ways to think about a situation. And what we found is when you ask people about that, um, one of the most, well, a fairly common and certainly not, um, as common as a legalistic logic, as common as a scientific logic, as com more common than an efficiency logic, was this logic of caring. So in everyday discourse, people, um, our conclusion is people want institutions to be responsive to individual circumstances, to account for um, people's circumstances in an empathetic way, to take well-being into account. Um, and so that's what the paper ends up being about. Again, important caveat, we're not saying that people then go out and march in the streets based on this, or even that they um, act based on these kinds of caring impulses in their own institutional settings. People might be in our focus groups and talk about this and then go to work and be the person at the DMV who stamps your driver's license expired. Right? They, they may not have scope, but it's to me, this is an important first step in imagining future research where we might look at how actually decisions are made within institutional settings. Is there more of this kind of um, caring logic being employed kind of in everyday interactions in these formal legalistic rational settings than we would expect? That's really fascinating. And I'd be curious to see kind of, you know, what happens when people want to apply a logic of care, but are then institutionally constrained by mm -hmm. the rules that they face. Like, 
thinking of the sort of barbarian cog in the machine that has to follow the rules, even though they don't necessarily want to, you know, as your, as your research is showing, people are relying on these logics, but are kind of bound by their you mm-hmm. know, institutional settings and constraints. Well, you know, this is something I hadn't done research on in, in forever. I did a, actually in a, a book chapter on a similar topic in graduate school. So it was like 1997. <laughs> and I had not really worked in this area since. So obviously, I had a lot of catching up to do um, on the literature. But it has, it, it's resensitized me. So now when I'm reading um, the news, or I'm on Twitter, or I'm on social media, or, um, but, but mostly when I'm reading news accounts, um, I'm very sensitive to mentions of caring or empathy or care ethics. Um, and it's something that's making, and so like right now, I think there there is a certain part of public discourse where people are using a, a caring ethic, a care discourse to push back. And some of these folks are conservative Christians and they don't like the, the uh, direction, for example, that they see um, many conservative Christian public commentators going in terms of their endorsement of political stances that they don't agree with. And so how are they arguing back against that? Well, sometimes they're invoking this idea that no, Christianity is actually about this care ethic and we need to like, we need to get back to that. Um, Again, who knows how politically successful that will be, but it's now that I've done this article and I'm, this is kind of fresher in my mind. um, I'm seeing more um, of this kind of care ethic, care logic being invoked in public debate as well. So I think there are some things out there to, to go and investigate. Yeah, that's that's related to a question I had about this, which is, you know, I think in the U.S. solidarity is quite low right now. Yes. And I just wonder, you know, the extent to which you think the logic of care could play a role in our polarization or lo- general low levels of solidarity. You know, I mean, it's kind of a broader, broader, even broader than how you were zooming out just there. I was just curious if you had some thoughts about that. You know, I think that that's, that is, again, I, I think it's a really smart question. And everything that that I know about the polarization literature suggests that polarization is not actually even particularly ideological. And it's, there are ideologies involved. You know, please don't all of you write to me about ideology. I, I do understand, I know their ideology is real and it's important. But the the ongoing polarization seems to be driven by people embracing identities that they care about. And then, and so what I think that does is I think it draws a circle around the people that you care about, (laughs) right? So you care about people inside the circle and you don't care about people outside the circle. And so I think that the logic of care, we, you know, people, um, people like me tend to think caring is great. Surely caring is always going to be a good thing, but I don't think that it would necessarily always be a good thing, right? So care could be a logic that you invoke to um, justify caring for your own, however you just decide that. Um, and, and again, I think that it was very clear in the focus groups that even in these kind of, you know, and the first set was conducted in 2011, polarization wasn't as bad then, it literally wasn't. The second set was conducted in 2017. Polarization was clearly more present, but, you know, people who agree to be in a focus group are the people who are willing to be a little less, you know, they're, well, meet people in the middle. But I think that what we we are seeing is that, you know, in the focus group, there were certain people who were prone to make moral arguments about who was worthy of care. And I think that that's one of the things to, to think about as well. If we think, I don't know that a logic of care is necessarily going to save us, but I do think that a logic of care 
it to be employed usefully to combat polarization has to be about the moral imaginary. It has to be about helping people to imagine the circle of people about whom we should care as bigger. Yeah, I think that I think that's a really great point. You reminded me of um, uh, some research on uh, uh, racism without racism, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, DiTomaso's work on, you know, you know, white people effectively cooperating with in-group members. And not necessarily having malice towards outgroup members, but as you said, they draw a circle around the people who they want to care about. And in that case, it's you know race based, based on you know identity processes from psychology. And I think you know you just to spitball that I think is brilliant, brilliant on your part. Like oh yeah, it's a, probably identity. I thought that was a, a, a oh. great connection there. Well, yeah, I, I love Tomas's work. I, I think that her work is very smart. And yeah, I think that this is you know when you think about it, then what this is one of the strongest. I think her work. Um, arguments for, you know, at the end of the day, so for example, if universities were, you know, that's my bailiwick, we want to change. You know, there really is something to be said for just hiring more people of color, right? It's not about diversity of views and experiences. And I understand that there are federal limits to how much you can just go out and say, hey, we want to hire more people of color. But but there is something about that, right? Because these processes um, work, if they, to the extent to which they work through, um, you know, the through emotions and identification, um, there's something to be said just for the value of expanding the circle, right? Quite literally. Yeah. So um, a, a different question that I kind of had is one of the things we've been talking about is the sort of logic of justice applies kind of equality, right? Mm-hmm. If you break the law, regardless of who you are, you're, you know, it, that's a violation. Whereas this, you know, logic of care to me is more like, yeah, I think of equity, mm-hmm. right? Like the the consequence or the result should kind of fit the setting, right? You have to take that context into into consideration. So one of the things that sociologists are quite interested in is achieving equitable, more equitable outcomes, mm-hmm. and along a various various dimensions, you know, stratification, segregation, all these big concepts in in sociology. So I'm wondering if you think there's room for a logic of care to contribute to more equitable outcomes. I mean, it seems intuitive because of the, the ways that sociologists study the patterns of stratification and segregation. But I'm just wondering if you have kind of specific thoughts in that space of how the logic of care could result in, in more equity. I mean, I, yes, to the extent to which a logic of care is directed specifically toward the idea that it is good to enhance well-being, right? That that's a good, that's a moral good, and it's a worthy object to which we should direct our attention and direct our resources. And I think that that is something that often it needs to be said. Right? I think that's that is something that is not always a priority. Um, it is something that often it is talked about. It, we think public debate about um, resources. Right now, Minnesota has a, a budget surplus of quite a large one, I guess, that's projected over the next two years. We do a biennial budget, um, like billions, and it's really you know. Um, in this, given this unexpected, you know, surplus, what should we do? Well, our Democrat governor, Democratic governor, Governor Walz, is all about, we should feed kids in school. Right? We should do breakfast and lunch and a bunch of other things too. But that's the one that really struck me is there's, there's absolutely, I mean, sure, you can come up with some kind of practical rationale for that because it helps them to learn and can focus, blah, 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 blah. There's just no reason to do that except that the kids are hungry and we care about that, right? It enhances their well-being, it enhances their family well-being, it takes pressure 
off the parents. Maybe other folks in the family eat better too if the kids are eating breakfast at school. You know, it's like, and, but it's really interesting to me to see him like try to bend over backwards to justify it in any terms, except that we just care about people and think it's the right thing to do. And then finally, I think he is just moving towards saying, we just care about people, it's the right thing to do. So I think to the extent to which a logic of care can justify increasing well-being, broadly conceived, as a legitimate and objective object of governance, of a legitimate um, object to which deploy to deploy resources, I think it can help. Again, I think that the the big challenge is, you know, Republicans in our state pushing back and saying, well, you know, we don't not obligated to care about this, folks. You know, let their families feed them. And again, I I don't. It's very easy to caricature Republicans, especially if you're, you know, I'm not a Republican. It's very, and I'm trying not to caricature them. So what I will say is, I don't believe that Republicans don't care about people, but I think the group of the people they care about, or where they see caring as an obligation to be located, it's in a much smaller circle, right? Um, and so I think that yes, if we can make an argument, um, but but it's really tough, you know. The U.S. decisively made that decision um, in the post World War II era, when the rest of Europe was like, we are going to focus on equity. We're going to focus on Europe. There's a huge surplus, right, in the post war economic boom, and Europe, European countries, for the most part, Western European countries said, what we're going to do is you're going to use that surplus to raise the floor for everyone, right? That's equity. That's, and the U.S. said, woohoo, Wild West, there are opportunities here for talented individuals who work hard to really, really do excessively well. And we want to encourage that. Um, and, you know, justified for all kinds of reasons. So, you know, not much of a floor at all, but like way more opportunity at the upper end, a much higher ceiling for those who can reach it. So while it's easy to say that, you know, blame the current situation on Republicans, there it's to be fair, they didn't invent this, you know, American cultural obsession with, well, we don't really care so much about the floor. We care more about individuals who can being able to really succeed. Um, that's been with us for a long time. And it was once a mainstream centrist view, right? It wasn't so so I think that there's a complicated history here. But yes, I do think that policymakers um, like I said, may well start turning to something that they're even willing to identify as an ethic of care, as a basis for rethinking how we move forward. Um, yeah. It sounded like your governor was a, a great example of yeah. the logic of care. Yeah, yeah. Good yeah I think he is. I mean, and we'll see if he gets reelected. I mean, not just because of this. I mean, a bunch of other things, too, you know. Democratic governor in a purple state, he came out early for both mask mandates and lockdowns, and some folks have never forgiven him for that. So, I mean, I I worry about his reelection chances. I hope he does, though, because I think he does actually, um, you know, to me, he's a real success story. He's a, like, I think a former high school, like, coach um, who clearly got into this because he cares about people. I think that's a great example. Yeah, yeah that is. Um, it's, so my last question has kind of emerged out of this conversation. It's, it's something you said earlier, which is it's trying, you know, for the logic of care to work, it's to get people to uh, broaden, you know, the, the bubbles mm -hmm. of, of uh, individuals that they consider, uh, you know, worthy of that their care and their empathy. Mm -hmm. So, you know, any suggestions and on that front of w strategies or ways that we can broaden, you know, someone's uh, willingness to care for others? Wow. Boy. I think if I had that, I would make a lot more money. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, but I think that's the real question. And I, but I, and I, 
I mean, I don't, I don't have good suggestions. I can tell you that in the research that we did with the focus groups, many people mentioned that they had gotten more compassionate as they got older um, and they had seen more bad things happen to people. Um, some, lots of folks, um, I, I'm thinking in particular to white conservative Baptist men in one focus group in a smaller town in Minnesota. One was, um, had done work in the local school district. I think he was an administrator in the local schools. I don't, I don't remember what, um, what his position was. One was a doctor who worked in town and the doctor, especially saying, look, you know, there was a time when I would have just been like, whatever, these folks are not my problem. This is, they were discussing a vignette about, um, a sanctuary church, a church, the, the hypothetical, um, vignette was that the church had offered this woman and her kids sanctuary because the, um, um, she was going to be deported, but leaving the kids here and the family is going to be separated. And so, you know, this, I remember, you know, this man saying, well, he's like, you know, there was a time when I would have been like, sure, fine, whatever, she broke the law, you know, and the consequences for her kids are not my problem. He's like, but, you know, I'm a doctor and I see these folks. He's, and he told this story about this man who was a, um, a migrant farm worker and he was legal, but he still couldn't get anyone in town to help him. He didn't have good insurance or maybe he didn't have any insurance and he had retinal detachment. He was going to go blind in one eye, you know, and there was just, and he said, I see these things happen to these folks. And I just have to say, they don't deserve this. Like these are human beings. We have to, we have to do a better job of caring about these folks. So, you know, I, I'm not, but how, again, how do you scale that up? You know, I'm, I'm honestly not sure. There is some evidence from the way that people react to both vaccines and mask mandates that suggests that outsiders coming into communities and telling them you should be more caring does not work for all the reasons you can imagine, right? You're a horrible person, David, you should care more. I mean, who wants to hear that, right? I want to hear that. But to have spokespersons within communities. Um, so, you know, maybe in some of these smaller towns, somebody like that administrator or that doctor could be an ambassador, but I don't know how you find those people and I'm not sure how you recruit them. But I do think we need to think, um, again, I, I don't think that, you know, as much as I, like everyone else, loves to be self-righteous on Twitter, I don't think that's the solution, right? And I, I do think we need to reach into communities and find places where there might be some folks who are willing to, um, you know, make a pact, make a make a um, a connection. Maybe they're never going to agree with you and be a political ally on other things. Maybe they will turn around and vote for the next Republican governor. I don't know. I hope not, but maybe. But still, on some of these things, they might be willing to cooperate, and that might be the best we can do for the moment. No, that sounds great. You know, basically uh, identifying kind of culture leaders, like in-group culture leaders, to kind of set the tone, and that's that's a great suggestion. Um, it, you know, I just thought it was great work and very, very highly applicable. And so I'm glad we had a chance to discuss. Well, thank you. I'm really glad. I'm glad to have a chance to discuss it too. You know, it, this, um, I, obviously, I, you know, I'm very lucky and I get to work on things I think are interesting, but this paper was, was special. I was very excited about this paper. So I'm really glad to have a chance to talk with you about it. Good, good. And so for the, for our viewers, um, I hope you've enjoyed our conversation about the article and I encourage you to go read it in more depth if we've, um, caught your interests. Thank you. And thank you, Dr. Edgel, for joining me today. Sure. Thanks, David. Okay. I'm going to shut it down now.